Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Ron Green here. I usually say coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance in Portland, Maine. But today, a little bit of a change of pace, coming to you from the home office in Portland, Maine. I am uh, homebound today. No, not because of weather, but because my 14-year-old son fractured his clavicle during a hockey game yesterday, and I didn't want to be alone today. That hurts. Um, So... This is our last program of 2014. Um, We've made it through another year, and we've made it through half a year with my co-host, Susie. Susie, how are you today? I'm well, thank you, but sorry to hear the news about your son. He's going to be out of action for a month or two, um, but you know what? That's, uh, That's the risk a hockey player takes. It's a contact sport. And there was contact. It sounds incredibly painful, however. It um, was very painful and continues to be, but um, he's hanging in there. Um, and his father gets to nurse him a little. I must say, don't know this. He doesn't listen to the program. But, um, you know, there's something nice about taking care of your kid, and I haven't really, he hasn't needed me to take care of him for a very long time. It's kind of nice to be able to do that again. So, though I'm very sorry about his clavicle, it's nice to be taking care of him. Isn't it nice when your kids still need you, even though the goal is to have them not really need you anymore? Absolutely. Do your kids still need you, Susie? They they do, in in some ways, um, they're very much launched, but I do get those phone calls um, where they could use some time to get some advice or just to simply vent. Um, I do get those calls. You never stop being a parent. Which is a good thing. Yeah, I kind of like being a parent. So, um, shall we begin with our last program of 2014? Sure. Now, we're not going to do anything corny on the program like do New Year's resolutions, are we? No, we're not going to do corny New Year's resolutions. Excellent. Well, we do not have any callers yet, and that could be because I haven't given the number out yet. It's 347-994-2981, 347-994-2981. But we have lots of email to respond to, and I am going to start with this one. Are you ready? Sure am. And then if we get callers, we'll take them. This one says, Hello. Can you kindly do some explaining around how it is that these kids 
with diagnosed oppositional defiant disorder or otherwise challenging behavior problems are often quite smart, smart in quotes, but still have these learning difficulties in specific areas or are lacking crucial cognitive skills. Thank you so very much. Well, you're so very welcome. Um, I'm happy to take the first stab at this uh, question. Um, All of us have uneven skills, all of us. Some folks are really skilled socially but couldn't hit a baseball to save their lives. Some people are really skilled in English literature and not very good in math. And some people are quote-unquote smart, but in the areas of flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, and problem solving, they actually aren't really smart at all. They are not very good at those skills. So while somebody who's not very good in math is going to struggle presumably when their lagging skills in math are being demanded, somebody who is lacking the skills of flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, and problem solving is at heightened risk for running into trouble when the world is demanding those skills. But the bottom line is I have yet to come across a human being who had perfectly even skill development and was highly skilled across the board. I just have never run into that. The novelty here, the part that many people feel is revolutionary, is that the field finally figured out that flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, and problem solving were skills. And... um, that there were some human beings who weren't very good at those skills and that lacking those skills can contribute to a variety of behavior problems. Um, The nice thing about that is it helps us get rid of a lot of what were the conventional explanations for why challenging kids are challenging. And, of course, we've gone through those many times on this program. They just roll off my tongue at this point. seeking attention, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated limit testing. Quite frankly, it lets their parents off the hook, at least in the being blamed department, not in the doing something about it department, but um, it's not very productive at all to blame parents because their kid is lacking skills. So that's the beauty of it. It also points us in a completely different direction in terms of intervention. Um, What these kids need from us is help solving the problems that are caused by those lagging skills, and they need us to do it in a way that simultaneously teaches them the skills they're lacking. And so this recognition that behaviorally challenging kids are lacking skills is huge, and it has the potential to not only be huge for the kids, but also their caregivers and their peers and their classmates and their siblings, One of the big reasons we do this program is to make sure that as many people as possible know uh, lagging skills are the primary contributor to challenging behavior. Susie, anything to add to that? 
I just wanted to say that I suspect the person who wrote in, if they take a good look at themselves, is probably lacking some skills. And um, just because somebody is extremely smart, um, like you said, doesn't mean that they can't be lagging some skills in flexibility, adaptability, problem-solving, and frustration tolerance. Um, it's a uh, developmental delay, a learning disability. And uh, I just think once we, similar to what you said, discard conventional wisdom and change our perception and rethink the kids, can we help them indirectly teach these skills by solving problems collaboratively and proactively? Now, you can probably speak to this personally. I think you have a few times on this program. Um, at some point along the way, the fact that your behaviorally challenging son was lacking skills became came into focus for you. What did that change in terms of your view of him and your interactions with him? Did that change anything up for you? Um, it was a 360-degree turnaround for me by um, embracing the philosophy that children do well if they can and that he was lacking skills, I came to understand him better and um, not take some of his maladaptive behavior so personally. It, it gave me, well, actually the model taught me skills um, in problem solving so that I could um, think things through and become a better parent. Um, but in recognizing that he was lagging skills, it, it helped enormously in terms of understanding him and what we needed to do to help him. It's interesting. One of the things I've observed as a clinician is that there are people who um, come to recognize that their child is lacking skills and that this is a developmental delay, and they don't really need much else. They just needed their instincts confirmed or that changed so much for them that they felt like they could take it from there. There are people who come to recognize that their kid is lacking skills and also go on to get really good at plan B. There are people who recognize that their kid is lacking skills and never become incredible at plan B, but just the new lenses change things dramatically for them. Um, 
I'm one of those folks who thinks that it's hard to do plan B without the change in lenses. And that's because plan B is really hard. And what I find is that recognizing that one's child is lacking skills is what keeps people hanging in there with plan B, even when it gets hard. Because a lot of the other things we do to behaviorally challenging kids really don't make a great deal of sense anymore once you recognize that the child is lacking skills and has unsolved problems. But the interesting part is I'm never exactly sure which part of the model is going to be helpful to people. But if somebody twisted my arm behind my back and said, tell us the most important part, um, it would be lagging skills. It would be people coming to have different lenses on and coming to recognize that their child's challenging behavior, which granted can be really hard to deal with and really hard to live with, is the byproduct of lagging skills, not any of those other things that we say about behaviorally challenging kids and their parents. Now, my recollection also is that um, not only was it an eye-opener for you, but that you had been blamed by other mental health professionals mm-hmm. for your son's challenging behavior. Um, the amazing thing is the lagging skills explanation kind of knocks that out of the box, too. Want to talk about that at all? Sure. It was just devastating. It was humiliating. Here I was trying my very best to be a good parent and to raise my son um, to be polite and respectful, um, responsible, to be a good person. And he was demonstrating um, behaviors that were contrary to that. Um, Of course, at that time, I didn't realize that not to focus on the behavior, that there were um, things that were being demanded from the environment that outstripped his capacity to respond adaptively. But um, it, it was just a very embarrassing and negative experience to be scolded by uh, a mental health professional um, And, uh, well, it just, you know, after three or four months of that, we just decided um, it wasn't working. Something was broken and we needed to do something differently. Um, I'm not sure that being scolded helps parents do well if they can. Shall we move on to the next one? Sure. There we go. I'm going to give the caller number again, though my impression is that people are a little distracted by the holidays around this time of year, but it's 347-994-2981. Here's another one. Thanks for your wonderful book. It memorializes what I believe works with these kids. 
I do have one question about the empathy step. Being genuinely empathic about a problem requires some knowledge about the root of the problem. If not, you'd be empathetic about the wrong thing. Here's an example. Nine-year-old son has not turned in his homework assignments the entire year. Day after day, week after week, we'd remind him to do it. If we'd used plan B, we'd be empathic about forgetting to do things. But after drilling a bit to understand his concerns, our son indicated that he does not forget, but does not know why he doesn't turn it in. More drilling, he never saw anyone turn in their homework, so he feels weird about it. Here the empathy step would have been better if we'd said, I can understand that you don't want your classmates to think you're weird instead of empathizing about forgetting about doing things. Please advise. Thanks in advance. Well, now here's the interesting thing. The main ingredient of the empathy step is actually information gathering and understanding. Until one gathers information from the kid about his concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem, in this case that might be difficulty turning in homework, until one understands the kid's concerns, there's really nothing to be empathic about. So this sounds like we had a theory a um, preconceived notion about what was getting in the kid's way, and rather than drill for information, we were instead empathizing on the preconceived notion about what was getting in his way, and I think that probably wouldn't help us solve the problem of turning in homework because we were empathizing on something that wasn't true in the first place as this father has astutely pointed out in his email. But the key point here is there is nothing to empathize with until you've drilled for information and until you've gathered some information about what's getting in the kid's way on whatever unsolved problem you're talking with him about right now. So yes, it's called the empathy step. And yes, empathy is a wonderful thing. And yes, I think what's going on in the empathy step is very empathic, so that's a great thing. It's just that you're not leading with empathy. You've got to gather information before there's anything to empathize about. Any thoughts on that one, Susie? Just, um, just uh, try to understand why this challenging behavior is happening in this child, um, there's a demand for those skills and understand what's getting in its way and be responsive to it. Shall we do another? Of course. Here is one of the more brief questions we've received. Do you believe diet can change a child's behavior? Um I'm happy to give my quick answer first. Yes, I've seen it happen. 
I've seen um, diet change my behavior. Um, amazing how much energy you can have when you eliminate processed foods, most sugar, most carbs, um, and most caffeine from one's diet. It's um, really fun to have a fairly constant level of energy across the course of the day. Now, there's one caveat to that, unless you're up a lot with your son in the middle of the night because he's in pain because he fractured his clavicle, then, um, well, you might have, although I've got to tell you, I have more energy today than I would have if I wasn't on this diet, but I have definitely worked with kids who, for whom gluten was an issue and whose behavior did improve. Um, there are people who could swear that there are certain foods, they could swear that there are certain dyes that affect their child's behavior. And um, although the research on that is actually not that strong, depending on who you read, um, if a parent comes in and tells me that if their kid drinks a soda, he's off the wall, I have no reason not to believe them. I don't know what you've... Why would they make that up? Um, I might ask them some questions about it just to make sure that um, what they're seeing is what's actually going on, but um, I've had people swear that certain foods set their kid off. And, of course, um, sometimes I would send them for further evaluation of that um, but one thing's for certain, if certain foods seem to be setting your kid off, um, I think the path is crystal clear about what we want to do with those foods. But do we want to do it with plan A or do we want to do it with plan B? We want to do it with plan B. I don't know. I've, I don't remember um, if you've run into that with your own kids. Was diet a factor in your own kids? Um. In a more general sense, what I tried to avoid was uh, having our son get to a state where he was starving because that really influenced his ability to uh, work things out and um, behave in a civil way. So... um, we really tried to avoid situations um, where he was just at the end of his rope, hungry for food. But, you know, every kid is different and they all have their own needs. Um, It's a very good point. Um, When a lot of people say diet, they're often referring to certain foods setting the kid off. But it's an interesting point you've made. I've actually worked with even more who just had a great deal of difficulty tolerating hunger or if they, or for whatever reason, forget the mm-hmm. tolerating hunger, that might not always be what it is, or they just run out of gas. Mm-hmm. And if we, don't, if we don't get food into them quickly... Um, they and we are up the creek. Sounds like you had one of them. Yes. 
Very much so. It's the real McCoy, and that's the answer to that question. Shall we move on? This is a very interesting one. Not sure, but the others weren't. Um, and tell me, I don't think I've read this one. The problem is I've, it's been in the queue for a while, so I'm hoping you'll have to tell me if you remember if we did this one already. I don't think we did. I think it's just that it's been in the queue, so I've read it to myself before. So says, okay. hi, Dr. Green. We are just beginning to implement Plan B from your Explosive Child book. Our son is able to control his behavior, impulsivity, vulgar outbursts, irritation, and aggression when away from home or around people other than his mom, dad, and sister. We struggle that he can behave appropriately around others but can't hold it together at home. He just randomly blurts things out. He could be sitting and reading a book and suddenly look up and say, Mom, you smell like a donkey's ass. No apparent reason. He insists he can't control it, and these things just come out. He thinks it may be that he is more comfortable at home and can be himself there. We haven't done this one, have we? No, this is no. His younger sister is very negatively impacted by this and feels very uncomfortable in our home. One solution we are about to implement is a counting system. Each day we will track how many inappropriate statements he makes, and each day his goal is to have less than the day before. I am not sure if this will teach him anything other than awareness of what he is saying. We are all at a loss for a solution to this problem. Any suggestions? Um, interesting one, eh? Thank you for rem- for clarifying that that's not one that we had done before. Um, yeah, I have a suggestion. I think we need to drill further to find out what your son says more about these statements he's making. But you are asking two questions. It sounds like his behavior, impulsivity, vulgar outbursts, irritation, and aggression in general are worse at home than with any other people. That's that's one piece. The other piece is he is making random, apparently random statements. Let me tackle that one first. I think we need to have him seen by somebody who knows something about Tourette's disorder. I'm not saying he has Tourette's disorder. I'm just saying when I hear about kids who are doing things like that, as has just been described, we want to rule out Tourette's disorder as a potential factor here. And one thing we're not going to hear from your son is, I do it because I have Tourette's disorder. But that's something to definitely get evaluated. And um, along those lines, I have my doubts about whether counting them is going to work. If he has Tourette's disorder, then he is going to have tremendous difficulty inhibiting those statements. And apparently, Tourette's disorder or not, he's having tremendous difficulty inhibiting those statements anyways. But that would be one major recommendation that I would have. Let's make sure that your son can be seen by somebody who knows something about Tourette's disorder And there are, I'm not positive where you live, but I'm going to assume in the United States or Canada, 
And there are Tourette's disorder support groups who can, that once again, I'm not, by no means am I saying on the basis just of the information that we have so far that your son has Tourette's disorder. No way. No how. Uh, we can't do that on this program. I'm just saying let's get it evaluated, and the Tourette's disorder support groups can probably lead you to um, mental health professionals who are in a good position to evaluate that. So that's point number one. Point number two, there are lots and lots of behaviorally challenging kids who, for one reason or another, look significantly worse outside the home than inside the home. Excuse me. Worse inside the home than outside the home. And in fact, I would say that's the prototypical presentation of most of the kids that I work with. Now, I work with a whole bunch who are difficult in both environments, home or home and outside the home. But there's a meaningful percentage that what I call look bad more inside the home than outside the home. And there's a variety of explanations for that. Uh, one potential explanation is the embarrassment factor. Lots of kids are able to keep themselves very tightly wrapped outside the home. But as your son seems to have said, um, can't keep themselves tightly wrapped 24 hours a day and, like most of us, look worse at home than we do outside of the home perhaps because of comfort level or perhaps just because home is safer and people can't keep themselves tightly wrapped for 24 hours a day. So it's actually not an especially uncommon scenario that you are struggling with. It's actually fairly common. Um, but what we really need to do is figure out what your son's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, whether inside the home or out. We really want to understand um, what's going on with your son when it comes to his behavior, impulsivity, vulgar outbursts, irritation, and aggression. And I've got a feeling that you may need a mental health professional to help you out with this one. So um, I think that um, the folks at the Tourette's Disorder Support Groups might be able to lead you in the right direction. Um, if you have trouble finding somebody, make sure you email us back at Lives in the Balance and we'll see if we can help you find somebody. There are also, um, there's another website, cpsconnection.com, that has clinicians listed on it in a providers section. And those, those folks have been trained by me to be proficient in the CPS model, um, I trust everybody on that list. Um, they're all excellent at the model. So we need to make sure we get you some help understanding your kid. I suspect the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems will help enormously, but I also suspect you may need some help beyond that. Susie, anything to add to that? It was any of your challenging ones more challenging inside the home than out? Did you run into that? Oh, absolutely. Um, our son was challenging uh, 
in both arenas, inside and outside the home, but much more inside our home. And it um, obviously makes life very difficult um, within your family and um, your other children. I I just was wondering in... um, a couple of things that you were saying just previously. What would it sound like if if you were to um, what would your what would your how would you state it in terms of lagging skills and unsolved problems to get the conversation going with her son? Well, I think that she needs a list of unsolved problems. Mm-hmm. Um, my bet is that um, so simply naming the behaviors is actually not going to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that first of all, kids often get defensive, think they're in trouble, and won't talk when we're talking with them about their behaviors. But because those behaviors are being exhibited in response to a whole vast array of different unsolved problems then when we ask a kid about the behavior, I've noticed you're hitting, what's up, is the example that I always give, then we are simultaneously asking about the many different unsolved problems that the kid responds to with that exact same behavior. And now what we're asking to do is think about all of those unsolved problems simultaneously all of the things that are getting in the way on those unsolved problems, and we have just greatly increased the likelihood of the kid saying, I don't know, or nothing at all. So in this model, we're not talking with a kid about his behavior. That's probably where the ELSIP is going to be most important for this mom. It's going to help her identify not only lagging skills so that she's got the right lenses on, but also unsolved problems. I'm just a little bit concerned that um, some of the unsolved problems the kid really isn't going to know, um, especially the blurting out vulgarities, and that they need, may need some help getting an explanation from a mental health professional for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. I don't usually go diagnostic on folks on this program. And once again, just to reiterate, I'm not going diagnostic here either. I just think it's important to get that evaluated. Um, but it is good to know um, that if those, if those vulgar comments are involuntary and the kid is having difficulty inhibiting them, and that would be my instinct, but of course I don't know her son, so I can't say for sure, um, that's going to cast a whole new light on them, and it's going to possibly suggest different interventions than simply counting them. Um, If the kid is having trouble inhibiting um, those comments, counting them is unlikely to get the job done. I hope I answered your question. Yes, you did. Thank you. You bet. Um, Shall we do another email? Sure. Here we go. We are in the home stretch here in 2014. We are almost done. Not that we're happy about that, but um, here we go. 
when she is at home, my 10-year-old daughter differs from Jennifer in Chapter 1 of The Explosive Child, only in that she is age 10, not 11. However, she has always been extremely successful at school. She goes to a small private school where she has many close friends, a great academic record, athletic success, and no discipline problems whatsoever. Obviously, many things go into making this success possible. But the most important factor is the strength of her relationships with students, faculty, and staff at the school. And, well, I can't believe this is what I'm reading now, her fear of embarrassment in front of these people. This fear of embarrassment is so strong that she has been able to essentially lead two different lives. Editorial comment, can you imagine how hard that must be? Mm. Several weeks ago, our daughter had a very bad session with a therapist who had seen her five or six times, claiming she was going to kill everyone she knew. Although my daughter can be violent, this was not in the least a credible threat. She just didn't want to be at therapy. The therapist decided she couldn't take the risk that this might be a real threat and called our county's social service agency. A social worker visited our child's school. No students found out about it, but the social worker interviewed several teachers and staff, including her new teacher, whose class she'd been in for only three days. They brought her in with the principal and in front of that person asked questions like, what happened the other day? No answer. Do you want, to remind, do, do you want me to remind you? No. You threatened to kill everyone. This private school is a small, close-knit community. Now the same strong force of embarrassment that was working on our side for so many years is preventing her from going back. She says things like, why did they have to ruin school for me? This is the fourth day of refusing to go to school. My attempts to use Plan B have not met with any success. Here are the two problems I've encountered. Problem one, the empathy step. Our daughter has been free about communicating her concern or perspective about the problem in general terms. The social worker told everyone she was a bad kid and she is too embarrassed to go back. Her new teacher, whom she was just getting to know, has been told of her badness. Even Mrs. X knows, the office secretary. I've spent a lot of time trying to find anything beyond this free-floating chain. She's walked me through her day to see if anything in particular was concerning her. I've asked her about the state of her homework to see if she was worried about that or if she felt she'd already missed something. I haven't been able to find out anything else from her perspective. But this free-floating shame is so much less specific than the other Plan B examples I've seen. For the record, the principal of the school was horrified by the options of the social worker. I think my daughter's feelings are understandable given the circumstances. Well, that's the tough one. Um, And I think that you can probably relate that one I guess my only comment on it is maybe that's all there is maybe that's it it. and I don't know if I would call it um, where is it free floating shame Uh, I don't know if we need to label what your daughter is feeling I think that um, your daughter is feeling uncomfortable 
that people know um, what she did. And here's the other interesting point. So that might be all there is to her concern. She's uncomfortable that people know. And if that's it, then that would be the concern that needs to be addressed when it comes time to solve the problem collaboratively and proactively and in a realistic and mutually satisfactory fashion when you get around to the invitation. Here's the only thing I would say. You were relying very heavily on the embarrassment factor, and it was working for you. But I'm going to put working in quotes because whenever we're relying on the embarrassment factor, um, I'm, I'm never secure in the belief that it's actually working. I'm only secure in the belief that the kid is keeping herself very tightly wrapped during the day, even though there might be unsolved problems at school. But then often coming home and um, losing it, becoming unraveled, just because people can't keep themselves very tightly wrapped 24 hours a day. So here's the take-home message. I don't like to rely on the embarrassment factor. And so while I fully understand um, why it's uh, disappointing that the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, I'm going to see the silver lining here. I never trust the embarrassment factor, quote, unquote, working forever anyways. And so I guess my positive spin on this is good. Now maybe we can start taking a close look at any unsolved problems that are occurring at school. Of course, we do need to solve the problem of your daughter going to school. But I wonder, and this is purely theoretical, purely theoretical, this is totally hypothetical, and of course everybody knows I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. I wonder if what your daughter is saying is um, there are lots of unsolved problems at school and because we've been relying on the embarrassment factor, they haven't been identified and they haven't been addressed, which is, I think, what sometimes happens when we become over-reliant on the embarrassment factor. So maybe there's a silver lining here. Susie, any thoughts on that one? That's a tough one. Um... I'm just also wondering um, if somehow the principal could um, talk with the daughter and um, reiterate how um, appalled she was, how this social worker uh, handled the entire situation and uh, reassure her that she's not in trouble, that she's that they're trying to understand, and um, I guess that's about it. Always good to find an ally at the school. Now, I'm actually not going to demonize the social worker, not that you are, not that any, 
not that anybody should. I think the social worker had to do what the social worker had to do, mm-hmm. namely make sure that the kid is safe. Um, whether that had to translate to the school is a judgment call. But, um, you know, every so every um, helper has an obligation to make sure that a child who says things like that is going to be safe. So whether it was over the top to let the folks at school know it, uh, judgment call, hoping she is safe, and I'm hoping that what we've talked about just now will help them solve that problem. And I'm sorry to say we are now out of time. Susie, thank you for being the co-host up until this point. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Happy holidays to all of our listeners. We'll be back on the 1st of January, first Monday of January.